Amen. So tonight will be our seventh installment of an eight-part in-depth review of the book within the book of Jeremiah. You know what it's called, the book of consolation. I'm sure that you recall that Jeremiah 30 introduced it in verse 2 and that it extends through chapter 33. They're the specific texts that God himself says must be contained within the scroll of Jeremiah. Tonight is our seventh night of teaching on the book of Consolation. It's our sincere hope that these teachings have thoroughly changed the way that you view the plan of salvation. Yeah, us too. The biblical story is about one plan for one people in one place that affect all of the world. The Bible's not just Israel-centric. You have come to understand, I even heard you praying it, that the Bible is Israel-dependent. Your understanding of concepts such as New Covenant or the Son of David or how about just the kingdom in general, they should be forever enlightened by what you've been taught over these last seven meetings. We're going to briefly review some of the highlights from the book of Consolation. In other words, from Jeremiah 30 to 33, because they're foundational to your understanding of the Newer Testament hope that you've come to share in. Now, we've given you more than 42 specific highlights. Tonight, we're going to boil them down to seven. Okay? Our repetition in this is because you've heard a couple thousand years of preaching that ignored these truths. They made them about you. They made them about just God so loved the world. And that is literally foreign to the Bible perspective. It's not that God doesn't love the world or that the whole world's not affected. That's not who the new covenant was given to. The fact that it affects the whole world is like saying, Genesis 12 was not really about Abraham, it was about the whole world. Now, it was specifically about Abraham, and it affects the whole world, okay? As we go into these, we're just going to give you seven that are overviews. I want to tell you, tonight is chapter 33. We had every intention of covering every verse of chapter 33. But between the manuscript differences and the extraordinary revelation and insight that my brothers have, it just could not be crammed into one two-hour session. So we're going to two-part this chapter, and we're going to do it exactly as the manuscripts do. The Greek manuscripts go from 1 to verse 13, and the Hebrew manuscripts, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, go to verse 26. So i got to tell you, we're going to cover them all. But we're going to do it Septuagint, then Masoretic text. That's how that's going to work. Let's begin our review. Is that all right with y'all? Yes. All right, so we should have a slide for you. And these are seven highlights of those 42 points that we have given you already. The first highlight from our reel is the reunification of the houses of Israel. We saw this in Jeremiah 31, 1. And we discussed the certainty 
that both houses, Judah and Israel, will be reunited. There are no lost ten tribes. Look at our second highlight. There will be a sword and sieve process. This was from Jeremiah 31 and verse 2. Do you guys remember the concept of sword and sieve? Yeah. Yeah. The Lord is going to sift his nation. And through that, there's going to be a remnant, a penitent remnant of Amen. Amen. And they're going to be ready as a whole. The whole penitent remnant will be ready to look upon Messiah and accept salvation in him. Look, we, uh, we just got to let you in on a little secret. And Peyton's been the one driving it. It's not exactly a drinking game, but it could be. Every time in our studies we can use the word penitent, we all, we all high-five each other. Uh, because the key to all Israel is that all Israel are those that are left and are penitent. There won't be any that aren't. Right. Yeah. And that's a major theological understanding if, if you can grasp that. In our third point of review, we have a time of trouble followed by salvation. This is from Jeremiah 31, verse 7. Remember that this time of trouble is unparalleled to any event in history. Yeah. Now, God never intended to do away with his nation. This persecution and difficulty was to refine them and prepare them for the glorious salvation that will happen. Thanks. As we mentioned earlier, we've given you some of 42 points that all have to do with the new covenant. What Peyton just shared is a third highlight, and I'm sharing with you the fourth highlight that we want you to focus on for the context of this evening. Particularly, that an only son would come to Israel, loving them and speaking of an everlasting love as he comes to them. Now, if that is foggy in your memory, you can return to Jeremiah 31, verse 3, and hear those words. Yeah. So how many of you look forward to a city whose foundations were built by God and there's a throne in the center and all the nations are around the throne? How many of you think you'll be in that city? Yeah, amen, me too. Except that that's not how the promise was stated. It is true that that is where the promise arrives. But the promise was actually stated to Israel. It's your fifth point of review. Connotative Israel will experience permanent salvation and surround the throne of God. That was taken from Jeremiah 31, 22. It's a comparison between the LXX and the Masoretic manuscripts. And you see them come to fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Now, the fact that every nation is there is very exciting. But remember, there's only one named nation. And it happens to be the nation that God originally gave the promise to. That's not by mistake. That's there on purpose. When we get into chapter 33, you'll see all kinds of things that you know mystically apply to you. The goal is to read them as applying to Israel before they apply to you, and then you'll be uh, within the biblical framework. Our sixth highlight is that connotative Israel, both houses of Israel, the northern and southern, will have the law put on their minds and hearts. They will all know Yahweh. Those penitent ones, they will all know Yahweh and they will all be forgiven. This is the new covenant itself. As Gentiles, we are very excited about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, correct? Yes. Well, that originally was promised as a covenant to both houses of Israel and specifically that the Torah 
would be on their hearts and minds. And not just both houses, all of both houses. In other words, a remnant in the first century that received this kind of endowment is not a fulfillment of what was said to Jeremiah. It must be those houses in totality as they exist in that day, or it's not complete. This brings us to our seventh and final highlight for the night, and it's an important one. Hope you guys were listening to the first six and through the weeks as we've been going through these because faith in these concepts that you're learning about the new covenant, this is like treasure in jars of clay. When you have faith in what we're speaking about, that the Lord will do these things with and for Israel, then what happens is what happened with Jeremiah. You have a title deed inside of you. Yeah. You have a testimony inside of you. You have something that the world needs to hear because you now know something that they do not. You know what the God of the universe is going to do. This is what makes you a co-heir with Israel. And guess what? You can't be an heir without Israel. That's the definition of a co-heir. You can be an heir with them, but you could never be an heir without them. Were you guys blessed by last week's teaching? Yes. Now look, we've been looking forward to chapter 33 for a while now, and we can't wait to, be, to begin. But since we can't stay here and review forever and still accomplish that goal of getting into chapter 33, we want to remind you visually of the new covenant promises as they are described in the book of Consolation. Do we have that slide? Yeah. This should become familiar to you as we review it throughout the weeks, and it'd be good that every day and every chance you get, you take a look at this chart to remind you. We keep doing this because every Christian says that they are co-heirs of the new covenant. But very few even know what the new covenant is, biblically speaking. Once you understand this essential principle, you will become a true New Testament believer like Simeon. Let's go to Luke 2, verse 25, and we'll review that. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. May our hope be biblical. Come on. May it be the hope of Israel. Amen. Holy Spirit, come be upon us for the true understanding of your plan. That Amen. should be our prayer tonight. Amen. That the Spirit reveal the truth of that plan to us. Now, while that's our hope, and that's our prayer, can you see how awkward it is then to think of global evangelism without mentioning Israel? Can you see how fundamentally flawed it would be to say, well, because we're in a country that dislikes Israel, can we just stick to the New Testament? No, you can't understand the New Testament without understanding Israel. What kind of treasure would you be bringing them? Yeah, you can't have a new covenant without Israel. See, this is a fundamental shift, a, an actual title shift in your understanding. And you may, not, you may not realize what's being done for you right now because this is familiar language in this house. But it's not familiar language in the Christian world. And... It is, it is the answer to, can we hand out New Testaments with Daniel and Psalms, or must we hand out the whole Bible? It's answers to, is it okay to just share Jesus with people without sharing with 
them about Israel. Now, you realize how disconnected, disjointed, and unbiblical that whole process is. And the world's largest evangelism associations do all of those things. And, and it is not the gospel. It cannot be the gospel if it does not include and depend upon Israel's salvation. And this leads to extraordinary error that just compounds exponentially in every generation. And it's what's turned the gospel into such a selfish movement as it is today. Okay? I just want to be saved from hell. Friends, the gospel has so little to do with you being saved from hell that's unreal. The fact that you are saved from hell is a benefit of the gospel, but it is definitely not the point. And what good would it be to be saved from hell and not be saved from lust? Not be saved from cowardice. Not be saved from your unholy behaviors. See, salvation is holistic, and it starts with the holistic salvation of Israel, and then it branches out to the rest of the world in every area of your life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, it is my job to ask Miss Jennifer to read for us this evening. But before we do, I want to let you know that the content that we're going to cover tonight, in a lot of ways, is a recapitulation of everything that you've heard over the previous chapters. But more than that, it puts it in a concise fashion, and then it expounds upon it. It takes it further. So we want you to tune your ears in and pay careful attention, because you're going to hear things that you should be familiar with, but it's going to be added to. It's going to have specificity about what it will look like, and it puts things in very definitive terms. Now, let's go ahead and read. Before we do, it's 7.15. I think we can spare 60 seconds to pray one more time. Yeah. Oh, if it's anointed, we can, we can spare more than 60 seconds. <laughs> I don't know. I'm the one praying. So <laughs> <laughs> Lord, I thank you for my family. Lord, I thank you that we have the substance back in the house this evening. Lord, we ask that as we get into this beautiful thing. But we wish to treat this more than just as another evening, another event. We are entering into your holy written word. And we ask that you would cause it to come alive inside of us. Oh, that your hope for Israel would rise inside of us. Oh, that that same proclamation of the gospel that has gone out from prophet to prophet might live inside of your people in this house here this evening. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Mama, if you would do the honors and take us through. All the way through 33? Yes, we're going to read all of 33, but tonight we're only going to expound on 14 verses. Because the next verses, 12 of them, uh, get into such profoundly deep things that we just can't do it justice in two hours. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says, he who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in the city and the royal places of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight of the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of men I will slay in my anger and wrath. 
I will hide my face from this city because of all of its wickedness. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Amen. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe, and I will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I will provide for it. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without men, animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, Amen. the voices of bride and bridegroom, and, and the Judah. voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty. For the Lord is good, his love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the, of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without men or animals, in all its towns, there again will be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken. And David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measurable as the sands on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and fixed the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Amen. Amen. So some of the things that we will not get to tonight. 
perpetual sacrifices. Christians don't consider that, but the Bible actually teaches it. There will be sacrifices that never end. A perpetual priesthood that or Levites. You know, Christians don't see a role for Levites anymore. Jeremiah clearly is told by God they will exist forever, just like the house of David will have a king on the throne forever. There are some amazing topics that you'll have to wait till next week for, where we'll give you sketches of the millennium, and you'll find out that most artist depictions and most pastors' depictions, they're fit for children's books, but not actually accurate in any way. And we want to help you with that. Tonight, we're going to drill down on these first 14 verses. And to do that, we usually have Mr. Linton, our esteemed reverend, begin to read. So we're going to read verse 1 and then set the stage for you. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. All right, somebody say, still confined. Still confined. He got an upgrade from the dungeon to palace house arrest. But you know what? He's still there. <laughs> he hadn't got a uh, release for good behavior. He hasn't been paroled early. He wasn't even let out because COVID hit the palace. <laughs> it's been seven days since we were discussing Jeremiah together, and a lot happens in this church in seven days. So we want to refresh your memory uh, about the setting in which this is taking place, I at least in brief format. It began in chapter 32, where we find him under house arrest in the palace. It's Jeremiah 32, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Well, that was word number one from God to him. We're now in chapter 33, reading word number two that came to him. Since this is the second time, but the same setting, that means that the battering rams of the Babylonians are literally at the palace doors. Do you remember that we went through this last week where the setting in chapter 32 was the last year of Zedekiah's reign? Yeah. It's the third and final siege of Babylon? Well, now we're some point later than that, which means the, the battering ram is literally at the door. Now, that means that this is the most desperate position that Israel has ever been in at any point in their history up till now. To help you grasp that for a minute, the first time the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the confinement of the courtyard, he was having a personal discussion with the king. Zedekiah. Y'all remember that setting? Yeah. Zedekiah hadn't paid any attention to him, had left him in a dungeon, but now that the Babylonian armies are outside, he's like, there may have been something to what Jeremiah was saying. Yeah, a little bit. This situation is very, very different. It's not a dialogue that is a three-way dialogue. Zedekiah is not facing Jeremiah, Jeremiah facing Zedekiah, and God speaking to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah delivering the word to Zedekiah. No, this is a word from the Lord to Jeremiah for Jeremiah. Come on. He's not delivering it to the king. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
He's recording his interaction with the Lord. Can I tell you, you can have some sweet personal times with the Lord that were never meant for the delivery to everyone else? Okay? Remember, Jeremiah has been prophesying about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. But personally, it's got to be heartbreaking for him to see it happening. Okay? Uh, in your thoughts, imagine that God revealed to you that China was about to invade. So it's like the movie Red Dawn for the young people, right? And you know for sure that's going to happen. Well, in some sense, when it happens, you think you'd be relieved because you're vindicated. But when you're watching babies dash to the ground right outside your door, when you're seeing your neighbor's wife raped, when you're seeing old people's house across the street from you on fire, you don't feel vindicated. You're broken by what you knew would happen that is now happening. Okay, That's literally the entire setting of the book of Lamentation. Jeremiah agrees with God, and he speaks for God. But he's also heartbroken for his people when the unavoidable judgments that he has pronounced are coming upon the people. Okay? Justin's going to hand out to you a scripture string, and it will help you grapple with that because it sets the context for the whole chapter. If you can't get into his state of mind and what is happening there, then the consolation is not quite the same. In other words, if you don't need to be consoled, then consolation just kind of rolls over you. But when you're in a desperate, terrible, heart-wrenching situation, consolation becomes very valuable to you. Yeah. And this is the setting that the New Covenant has given him. Yeah. All right, Rob, you get uh, Lamentations 2.11. Uh, Timo, Lamentations 2.20 through chapter 3, verse 1. Chris Riasori, you're going to get Lamentations 3, verse 20 through 26. And then we'll pick up in Jeremiah 31, or 33, rather. So, Lamentations 2, 11. My eyes fill from weeping. I am in torment with this. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. Because children and infants faint in the future of this. He's at torment within. And he's the man that prophesied that those things would happen. Yeah. You know, it's easy for us to read the prophecies in Jeremiah from an analytical point of view. We like to dig into the eschatology. We like to dig into the theology. We like to dig into the Israel dependencies in Jeremiah's prophecies. But oftentimes we forget that Jeremiah was watching women and children die. He was listening to the battering rams right there at the front door of the palace. He saw his relatives imprisoned and butchered. His hometown is only five miles away from Jerusalem. This is a real man who's heard from God. He has done what God has told him to, and now he's watching it happen. And it's not so easy for him to do. It's heartbreaking in this situation. Who in here has a relative that claims to be a believer, but you do not think they're a believer? How would you feel? if they were being executed in your driveway? Would you feel vindicated and justified? No. Or would you be grieving over their situation? It doesn't mean that it wasn't prophesied, wasn't deserved, or is not God, and you do agree with God, but you're heartbroken over what is now happening because of disobedience. Yeah. That is the situation. So Lamentations chapter 2, verse 20. Let's continue to grapple with what Jeremiah is experiencing. Verse 20. 
Read it, uh, read it loud, Timo. Yeah, read it loud and deliberately so that we can ponder the details. He's got some bolts. Look, oh Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring? Wow. Should children have care, the children they have cared for? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. As you summoned to a feast day, so you summoned against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those who cared for and reared, and those who cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. Those I cared for. Those I cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Wow. Are you guys starting to feel Jeremiah yet? Yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. Let's go back and talk about some of these things that he's saying. Who might be treated like this? Should women eat their offspring? No. Absolutely not. Children they have cared for. The answer is no. But he's seeing it. He's watching it with his own eyes. Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary? No, of course not. But he's seeing it. He's watching it with his own eyes. He's watching young and old lying together in the dust of the streets of Israel. He's watching the Lord's anger and wrath being poured out. And he says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. We're, we're feeling this. We're beginning to feel it together tonight. But in reality, it's nearly impossible for us to understand this completely. It's nearly impossible for us to conceive completely the anguish that Jeremiah must have been in, watching the severity of judgment that was befalling his people. Think about it. He's standing there watching these things transpire, and it's exactly what he was prophesying about, exactly what the Lord told him would happen. And yet, it's before his face now, and it's a reality. It's actually happening. And now he has to grapple with that. God is just in bringing this judgment. And guess what? It wasn't just Jeremiah that prophesied these things. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 53 through 57, it was prophesied hundreds of years before Jeremiah prophesied it. But can you imagine watching these things happen to your own relatives? Engaging with this concept will help you understand the importance of Jeremiah 33 as the culmination of the Book of Consolation. The Book of Lamentations is filled with these lamentations of Jeremiah. However, even in the midst of this kind of difficulty, we're going to see that Jeremiah had some hope. <laughs> Who had our next scripture? Look, before we read the third chapter of Lamentation, we live in a time where people say that if you dress a certain way, you're trying to culturally culturally appropriate somebody else's culture. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. We live in a time where people are so sensitive about this stuff, you can get canceled. <laughs> a, a time when woke is said it's a good thing. I actually think it's just kind of a devilish effeminate thing, but whatever. Imagine that God wrote to you during this kind of time frame and then another people come along and say, we love those promises, and they're good, 
and we want them, and they're for us and not for you. Isn't that the kind of the height of, of cultural appropriation? Yeah. Okay. Now, Christians don't usually say it like that. They say it like this. Well, we are the Israel that God was after. Where, friends, can you find that in the 39 books of the Tanakh? Where can you find that in the Newer Testament? What you find is that God has consistently had one people, one plan, in one place, and in you were a mysterious inclusion in that plan, okay? When we haven't gone through these things as a nation, these consolations are beautiful and we love them, but not like the nation that has gone through Holocaust to get them, okay? And I personally can't sit by silently and act like they were written to us in the same way they were written to them. It's simply not true. It's intellectually dishonest. And it's from a scheme that doesn't understand the Bible because it starts at the wrong end of the Bible. If you start at the beginning of the Bible, this becomes painfully clear. But we want to get into the third chapter of Lamentations so that there's some hope. We want you to see where Jeremiah derives that hope. Given what we had just spoken about in the last couple of minutes, does chapter 3 just give you a breath of fresh air? Yes. There is hope in the midst of a horrible situation. Yeah. And one of the things we get to share with you tonight is the source of that hope. Amen. His hope was undoubtedly from the book of Consolation. Yeah. What we're about to read in the following verses must have been something that his heart clung to. Can you imagine Seeing the things that Jeremiah saw and having these promises that he called to mind that brought him hope. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 2. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Now, I know you may not recognize it at this moment, but you're going to see relatively quickly why we're only going to verse 14 this evening. (laughs) Yeah. And this one opening line... There's comfort being expressed that would be so, so easy to miss in the English. Yeah. We have a series of slides that we're going to walk you through. But you're going to get a flavor for how the Lord is communicating to Jeremiah when no one else is around to listen. It's his word to Jeremiah comforting him about the end goal of Israel. Let's get that slide. Thus saith the Lord. Now, anybody want to take a guess at what that Strong's number is? Yahweh. Yahweh. Or Yehovah. <laughs> We're going to run with Yahweh while I'm doing this. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, or Yahweh, the maker thereof, the Lord, Yahweh, that formed it to establish it, wow. it, the Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Now, I don't know if it immediately strikes every one of you, 
But it's a fairly uncommon occurrence to have Yahweh listed three times. The Lord pronounces his covenant name three times, Yahweh, 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 before giving Jeremiah further insight into the restoration he will bring. But that's not all. Let's take a look at our next slide. Before Judah gives you this next slide, to hear Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. You remember that this is the covenant name that God gave when making the covenant with Israel? Yep. That's why it's so encouraging to hear it again. Yep. Because it's a reminder that he birthed this nation. Do you know the only times that it occurs in the Bible in triplicate like this is during a time after Israel has failed, but there is still hope? Yeah. Okay, go back and read Exodus 34 sometimes. You'll see that. After the commandments were broken, when they're being reinscribed, God does the same thing. It's his way of saying, I keep my covenants even when you don't perform well. Yeah. So hear this in context of what my father just said. Yahweh, the maker. Yahweh, that formed. It established it. Yahweh is his name. So after proclaiming Yahweh, his covenant name, three times, God affirms three things about himself to Jeremiah and about the state of Israel. Namely, he is the maker. I am the one who created you. He is the one who forms that which he has made. I made you, Israel. My name is Yahweh. My name is Yahweh. I am the one who will form you should have little moments where you're drawn back to the potter's house who's able to reshape a lump of clay. My name is Yahweh. He does this to establish it. His creation, his formation is all aimed at him establishing it the way that he always intended in his name, his character, and his body of work. Now, in fairness, this verse is actually about Yahweh doing that for the whole world. But I want you to catch something. Listen carefully as Judah shares this next part with you. Because you might remember from last week that the reason that Yahweh created the world Uh, is that he foreknew Israel. And the very days of creation actually forecast the events of Israel's history. The world was formed and fashioned with Israel in mind. Ben, how are you doing tonight? Very good, brother. Still got a little Calvary Comer in you? (laughs) So if this is true of the whole world, then how much more is it true of his one and only son out of the nations? The one nation that Yahweh chose for himself. Jeremiah comes about 150 years after another prophet. That prophet's name was Isaiah. That prophet had a very similar revelation. In fact, one that used the exact same combination of Hebrew words. If you write down those Strong's numbers, every one of them will be used in the same combination in the passage that we're about to read. Wow. Uh, Who would like to read it? I would. (laughs) I was going to call on you, Rob, but it's tough. It's it's tough to compete with such verbal confidence over there. (laughs) And friends, faith is always rewarded. So Isaiah 45, you're going to read 18 through 19. And in the 18th verse, you're going to see these same three words. And unfortunately, they're translated differently in English, but they're the same words in Hebrew. Isaiah 45, 18 through 19. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it 
He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Now, did you hear how when identifying himself as the creator and saying, clearly, I fashioned the earth, I made it, I founded it, he then immediately moves to Jacob's descendants, you're not seeking me in vain? That's because he made the world for their benefit to achieve what he wanted in a plan that started before time began. If you buy me a cup of coffee this week, I'll give you 16 references to before time began. God had this in mind. But for now, why don't I just refer to Revelation 13 and say the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That certainly means that he had Israel in mind then since they're the nation that produces the Passover lamb. (laughs) Amen? Okay. The opening statements in chapter 33, they affirm Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh fashioned, made, and founded the world in order to reassure his friend Jeremiah that there is still hope for the descendants of Jacob. It's exactly what Isaiah 45 does. So Jeremiah is familiar with Isaiah 45, but now God is saying it to him in a situation where he can look out the window and see that there is cannibalism happening. How important do you think that would be for you? Jeremiah and Isaiah. In fact, every prophet in the history of biblical prophets understood something. God is never done with Israel unless the world is completely dissolved and day and night don't work anymore. In fact, those things were created so that Israel would have the opportunity to bring to the world what God planned before time began. Amen. 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 What you're about to encounter when we get to verse 3, say about to. About to. It's a profound invitation. And it's in a personal conversation that God and Jeremiah are having. And, well, it's special. Okay? I can remember this being one of the first songs I ever heard Miss Joe singing, and I <laughs> fell in love with it then. But it comes from verse 3. Go ahead and read that. Call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Man, I got to say, this passage is beautiful for us today. But imagine being, Je- being Jeremiah and the Lord is telling you this personally. Come on. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Now, this statement has produced numerous songs of exaltation throughout the ages. Any of you ever hear Jesus on the main line? Well, right now, God is giving Jeremiah his phone number. And he's saying, call me up. Call me up and I will share with you things that are great and unsearchable that I'm not sharing with anybody else. You are the man that I placed right here, right now. And I will share with you specifically things that are great and unsearchable. Man, how beautiful is it that the creator invites a man to call out to him so that Yahweh can reveal mysteries to this man. Now he's doing this for Jeremiah, but you read... You read Isaiah 45, right? He said, did I speak in secret? Did I call out to Jacob and tell them to seek me in vain? This was for all Israel. 
And yet right now, Jeremiah is in the position to receive it because he has listened to the Lord and the Lord is about to share with him great and unsearchable things. We're going to hand out a scripture passage and you're going to see how this forms, how this thought process forms for Israel in the beginning of the Torah and throughout the rest of the Bible. Who wants to read Deuteronomy 29, 29? Particularly from the front few rows of the church. If you sat in the back, that's your fault. You don't get to read. From the front few rows, we want you to read. So, Abba We'll Bola. let you read in the back <laughs> if you read it like a man. <laughs> Abba Bola, you're going to get Deuteronomy 29, 29. Hayes, like a man. Amos 3, 7. JJ, we know you are like a man. Proverbs 25, verse 2. Cho, you ready for this? You're going to get Daniel 2, 27 through 28. Nick Rosales, John 14, 25 through 27. Uh, Brandon, you're going to get Revelation 1, 1. And 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 goes to Spencer. All right. What a man right there. Spence, where'd the handlebars go? I made one comment about it in a message and they went away. All right, so Deuteronomy 29, 29. Before we get into Deuteronomy 29, 29, think about this. In verse 2, we had the Lord declare his covenant name three times. Yep. And then we had the Lord declare three unique attributes that are only attributed to the Creator. And then in verse 3, he's speaking to Jeremiah and he says, You, Jeremiah, you called to me. If you look at that progression... You see, Yahweh God, who was, who is, and who is to come. He's the creator, the one who creates, the one who forms and fashions, the one who does these things. And then he says, Jeremiah, if you call to me, then what I did to my creation, I will do for you. If you call upon my name, then the, my creative power, the way that I made this entire planet and this entire universe, I will do the same for you. I will make you into the man that I always called you to be. But I'm telling you, you got to call on me. you got to call on my name. you got to call out for it. And I promise you that I will do it. As we read these scriptures, starting with Deuteronomy 29, 29, think about what your responsibility is in calling out to the Lord that he would make you into exactly what he called you to be. All right, my brother Nick has stirred me up. It's his fault, not mine. <laughs> What's the first instance, Bible scholars, of God calling in the Bible? Adam. Adam. And what was Adam's response? Hid. Hid. Hid because he was naked, right? That's how you say that in Texas. Look at the reversal here, okay? God has always been calling out to mankind, but he's looking for the response. He's looking for the man that will call back to him. And to that man... He will reveal things that others couldn't know. But most of mankind, for most of the ages, has hid from the voice of God. And if, instead of hiding, we stand up and say, this is our state and I need your help, help me, Lord! He will do for you and in you things that have never been done before. Okay? That is why the Bible is not only a war story, but a wedding story. God the groom is calling to us the bride. First Israel the bride and then us the mysterious grafted in. Okay? But what he's looking for is the response. 
See, I keep catching Tom and Martha's eye over here. And at some point in his life, Tom had to get down on a knee and propose to Martha. Yeah. It wouldn't be much of a story if she still had not responded, though. Yeah. <laughs> right? That would be yeah. a tragedy. The Bible is about those that respond by calling back, and then they know their groom better than ever before. You would not have any idea about these things if you didn't have an Israeli family book in your lap teaching you about these oh, things. That's true. Hey, we better get to Deuteronomy. All right. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Hey, he's the creator. He's the one that has the secrets. He's the one that is the revealer of mysteries. And he is waiting for the one who will call on him. And he is waiting to pour out the mysteries of revelation upon the one who will seek his face. The one who will pursue him. The one who will stand out among the rest. The others that are going and hiding Who's going to be a man and stand up in this place and seek God for his secret wisdom? That's, that is the title deed that the Lord wants to give to us. Amen. Now, when, uh, when you engage with this, just so that we're, we're, we're going to do two things. You're going to see the original intent, and then you're going to make application. Nick just helped you with application. But... Who did God reveal something that belonged to them and their children forever? Was it you or was it Israel? And because it's true for them, you find out that it is also true for you. That was a mystery, but we have found out that that is true. That was first said about Israel, though. And the word is forever. It means forever. Okay? When God gave Israel his law, it was forever. Yeah. When God gave Israel their Messiah, it was forever. forever. When God gave Israel the Brit Hadushah, it was forever. forever. And knowing that means that you can know when he has revealed something to you, he intends for it to be yours and your children's and their children's forever.
Isaiah, Gentile, right? No. no. Jeremiah, Gentile, right? No. no. In fact, every notable prophet except for one was an Israeli. That's who he revealed his plans to. Do you know the one notable Gentile that was a prophet? His name was Balaam. The man got a couple things right, then advised sexual immorality and goes down in history all the way into the book of Revelation, which was written by a Jew who had a revelation of things to come as a testimony of what wickedness looks like. See, when we're considering prophecy in and of itself, the conduit from God has always been Israeli men delivering it to the rest of the world. His law has existed from the very beginning, but we would have never heard his word without their testimony. Yeah. Hey, who wrote the book of Proverbs? Solomon. Now, Solomon, definitely a Gentile king, no. right? No. 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 Somebody get Proverbs 25 2, whoever has it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To certain out a matter is the glory of kings. Man, the wisest man in the world that asked God for wisdom because he realized he lacked it. An Israeli king wrote this proverb. He wrote a proverb about what a man is like who seeks after the things that Adonai has already hidden, but is looking to reveal to his sons who are kings in his house. Man, the things we just read beforehand in Deuteronomy and Amos tell you something about the king that we were speaking of. Even part A of 25.2 does. The glory of God is to conceal a matter. But part B tells you something very unique. It tells you something of the nature of the men that would pursue him, that would serve him, that would follow him and seek out the things that he had stored up, first and foremost, for the sons of Israel. We've been granted the opportunity to pursue that. Perhaps this is why Revelation says that he is the king of kings. It describes a man that is ruling those that have recognized he has all that we want, and we pursue it out and are made into kings along the way. So did you grab hold of all of this? And I see some of you feverishly write notes, and I just want to make sure you can connect these dots. Deuteronomy 29 is a statement that is about an entire nation that seeks God. Amos 3.7 is a statement about God's character, that he likes to reveal things to those who serve him. Proverbs is a statement about the character of the kind of man that seeks him out, kingly. Well, would you like to see such a man? That's Daniel 2, 27 through 28. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Well, so you have to picture that Daniel has had terrible things done to him. He's in Babylon, so he's not standing on Israeli soil. He's in the court of a foreign king, so it's not like he's standing in the Holy of Holies. And yet, because he is a kingly son, he knows something is true about God. He is the revealer of mystery. Yeah. Let me ask you, dear saint, if you had to write on an 8 by 11 sheet of paper the things that you did not hear from any other man that God revealed to you, would you fill up that sheet of paper? See, we often know an awful lot about God without knowing Him. 
And this means that you can describe his stats, what his offense was like, what his defense was like, how tall he was, what he weighs, but have no actual interaction with him. People sit in church and they learn stats about God when the entire point was to drive you to the kingly behavior of getting to know him. Jeremiah is actually in a prison, a courtyard prison. And he's having a personal interaction with the Lord. And we're benefiting from it. It was not something that he was told to go stand on the palace and proclaim. It was something God was speaking to him for the consolation of his heart. Can I tell you one time that God speaks to you is worth 10,000 times that somebody else is speaking for God to you? Yeah, man. Man, we should be seeking that. We should want that with all of our heart. In Daniel 2, we find the testimony of a man who knew the things that we are saying are true from his personal experience. As a pastor for almost three decades now, I can tell you the difference between those who excel in the kingdom and those that just hang out on the fringes. It has everything to do with their personal interaction with the Lord. This is why men like A.W. Tozer said, a man will never outgrow his prayer life. Mm. Okay? If you are not interacting with the Lord on a personal level, of course you're always offended. If you're not interacting with the Lord on a personal level, of course your life is defined by sin management. But you let the Lord speak to you because you're calling out to Him, it'll fix you for months. But you won't want to wait months because your appetite for it grows. And you're like, again, Lord, again, again. Now that we got each other's digits, I'd like to talk more. Okay. That's what happens when you fall in love with Him. And this is what the Newer Testament is building on. So who's got John 14, 25 through 27? It reads, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. All right, so y'all help me. You got it. Who is Jesus speaking to? The Israelis. Was he speaking to Gentiles? No. No, he was in a Passover meal with 12 Israeli disciples. Are you starting to see a pattern here? That this ability to know the God of all mysteries, to God, the God of all secrets was given to Israel. It was given to Israel as a nation. They are the conduit, like Judah said, to reveal mysteries. It was given through the prophets. It was given through the men like Daniel. And now Jesus, the Messiah, is transferring that to his disciples. This is an entirely Jewish thing to be able to know the God of mysteries. They gave us the Bible. The only way you can know the mysteries of God is to know the Jewish Bible of itself. And now Jesus is transferring that opportunity to his disciples. You want to know who was there listening to that? Judas was. You see, just like the whole nation of Israel, not every Israelite took that opportunity. Just like all of the prophets, not all of them took the opportunity. Jonah was one of them. Just like all the disciples, not all of them took the opportunity that was afforded to to them. And as Gentiles, we've been grafted into the ability to hear from the God of mysteries, and yet not everyone pursues that. Not everyone has the diligence to enter into that. And man, can I just say what a wonderful thing it is as Gentiles that we get that opportunity? The secrets of Yahweh that belongs to Israel, we have access to? 
Let's enter every opportunity to do that. Amen. Jesus said Jeremiah is not alone in that regard. His disciples could do that. We are able to participate in that same ability. Amen. Who's got Revelation 1-1? Revelation 1-1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Okay. So we've reached the end cap. The closure of the canon in Revelation 1-1. This book is the end. It's the last one. And it was written by a, a man that we affectionately call John the Gentile. No! No, no see, that just doesn't work. No, no, no. No, John was actually a Jewish disciple of a very, very, actually the most Jewish rabbi that ever walked the planet. His name was Jesus Christ. John... In, John, in Revelation 1.1, he's speaking about a revelation that he received from Jesus Christ. Come on now. This is a man who literally saw more revelation unveiled than any man in any previous generation. And it was the closure of the canon. It was the end. And from beginning to end, you see Jewish man after Jewish man after Jewish man compiling the summation, the totality of the Bible that you hold in your hands today. The whole concept, though, it didn't start with John. No. Well, what we're reading in Jeremiah, what we see there is God's invitation to Jeremiah to call to him. John learned from this. He learned from what the Lord told Jeremiah, and he called to him so that God could show him the unsearchable things, the unveiled things, the hidden things, the unknown things that he had grown not just accustomed to, but that he had grown an appetite and a raging desire yeah. for. Come on. Yeah. And, and you know that the setting where Yohanan is receiving this was much like Joel Osteen lives in, right? <laughs> How is it that every time you put a Jewish man in a prison or a terrible situation, he can call out to Yahweh God, and receive revelation that feeds everybody in the world, everywhere, at every time, through all ages. Because they're a chosen nation. Yeah. And you too, my friends, have been grafted into that kind of favored status. We're not saying that you haven't. We're trying to build an appreciation for who the new covenant is given to. John was on the Isle of Patmos, and his book is called Apocalypsos. Does anybody, any Greek scholars know what that means? The unveiling, okay? It is building upon exactly what God said to Jeremiah. Call on me and I will show you the hidden, the unsearchable, the, the veiled things, and they'll be unveiled to you. See, the way that the New Testament is actually written is by looking at the Older Testament and standing on its promises, and they're simply furthered. It's one contiguous book. It's not two separate things meant to be uh, contrasted with one another, a stick to beat the other one over the head with. It's one God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John understood that. In fact, he didn't have a newer testament to read on the Isle of Patmos. He was a Jewish man praying and probably meditating on and reciting the 33rd chapter of Jeremiah 
when the Lord appears to him to show him great and unsearchable things. Okay? Do you see how that works? Yeah. Well, the Apostle Paul says something to us that Peyton's going to explain that you should take very seriously. We have 1 Corinthians 2. Okay. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So the apostle who wrote these things apparently saw something in the heavens that was so great, he wasn't even permitted to tell another man. For further reading on that, read 2 Corinthians 12. But listen, he is encouraging you to call upon Yahweh so that he can reveal things to you. Don't you want that? Yeah. I do. So we must call upon him. This scripture string has blessed me today as we've studied. And now that we've taken this as a Pentecostal praise break, I think it's time that we get back to the text in verse 4. And we want you to notice what God reveals about his nation. So Jeremiah calls on him, and the response is about God's nation. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with dead bodies of men. <clears throat> I will slay my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from the city because of all its wickedness. Now, we have no intention of picking on the 1984 NIV this evening. No. <laughs> Even if it's wrong. Well, we're going to go ahead and just suggest that you happen to be reading in the other translations. Like any other translation. Pretty much. And I can see some of your eyes in the room who are following along in your own Bible. You may notice that it doesn't say, I will hide my face, but I have hidden. And the reason for that is that the Hebrew tensing allows for either reading, but context is what should determine it. And clearly, the context in this passage suggests he has already hidden yeah. his face. Oh, yeah. I.e., Jerusalem surrounded by armies, battering rams at the gates, and people eating each other and eating their children. Yeah. I love the NIV. And when you're considering the ridiculousness of this for just a moment, it's like warning someone after they've already been shot. <laughs> we're past that point. His face has been hidden. But we're going to continue to build to a place as they're under this kind of discipline and judgment that is sincerely beautiful as we pick up in verse 6. Nevertheless, I will bring help and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. Uh, hold on just a second. We're going to read this again. I've never appreciated the word nevertheless. Because it, it's usually in a sentence like, you know, things have been good, but nevertheless, this sucks. Okay, nevertheless usually erases what's before it, and what's before it I don't want to be erased. It, it's, it's what's called a, a negating conjunction. But in this case, I've never appreciated the word nevertheless like I do right now. Yeah. There's going to be dead bodies everywhere. Bodies hitting the ground, right? Nevertheless, I'm going to do something amazing. Okay? I want you to grab hold of the concept of nevertheless for a minute. Because when you're looking at terrible situations, but God is speaking to you about hope in the future, sometimes you have to say nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've lost my job. 
things are terrible. I've been a bad father. Nevertheless, I'm alive today, yeah. and it can change tomorrow, and God has said he'll change it. Amen. Come on. He's looking at the worst situation a nation can be in, but God says, nevertheless. If you'd pick back up in six and hit the word nevertheless hard enough to wake up the sleepies in here. Nevertheless, go ahead. I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. Come on, man. There is so much to say about this promise. To put it into perspective, remember that Jeremiah 30, 13 through 15, they described Israel's wound in a certain way. They said Israel's wound was incurable. Second yeah. Chronicles 36, 16 said, there is no remedy for this nation. Can you imagine being in the situation where God has said your wound is incurable? Yeah. Where God has said there is no remedy for your situation? What kind of despair would that bring to you? But in the book of Consolation, those statements that were entirely true are revealed to be from a human perspective. Your wound is incurable by you. Your situation has no remedy that could come from you. Nevertheless, I am able to fix it, and I'm going to. See, we're speaking of God's ability now. Faithless theologians, they can leave the room. (laughs) Faithless theologies about Israel, they can leave the room. We agree that the wound has often been incurable. We agree that the situation often has no remedy. Except God says, nevertheless, I will heal. Come on. Come on. Nevertheless is a pretty important word in this passage. Yes. I want you to look at the definitions for the words that in your Bible say health and healing. Okay? Don't get too excited, you supplement fans or those that run though nobody's chasing you or you vegetarians out there. That's not what's really at play here. Okay? Yeah, I can feel some of your wheels turning. You pastors need to get more healthy. Friends, spend as much time reading your Bible as we do, then we'll talk. Right here, health and healing. They're very special words. Okay? Let's throw the first one on the screen. It's Strong 724. Justin's going to pronounce it for me. All right. Arucha. Rucha. Healing of a wound. (laughs) What's in yellow right there? Somebody say it. Restoration. You mean cannibalism's going on out there? And yet God is saying, nevertheless, I will bring restoration. Let that settle on you for a minute. When we're talking about healing a nation, we're not talking about putting a few stitches in your arm. We're talking about restoring God's order to a whole nation. But he doesn't stop there. You would think if he says, I'm going to bring you health and healing, they would be the same word. They're not. Let's get our next one. Rafa, to heal physical and spiritual healing. Wounds being restored. It describes the restoring of a person. 
except he's not talking about an individual. He's talking about a whole nation. God alone was able to heal the wounds of his broken people. That's what the lexicon said about this word. Sometimes we have a fine way of separating spiritual and physical things. That's because we have Greek mindset. We tend to think of ourselves as three-part beings. But the Bible simply says he made a man. And that man happened to have three parts, but it's one man. We like to do this with the Godhead, too. One God. We often describe it like it's three gods. It's not. One God. And when God brings you healing, you say, but was that just to my emotions? Or was that to my broken arm? Was it to my broken arm or was it to my soul? When God says Rapha, he means the whole man. And when he says it about a nation, he means the whole nation. He's bringing restoration. He is bringing spiritual and physical healing to the whole nation. That's quite a promise, don't you think? And when you look out the window... What you saw was death. And when you looked into the heavens, what you saw is a promise that says, Nevertheless, I will restore. I will heal you spiritually and physically. This is the context of the new covenant. The healing of the nation might have been impossible for a man, but God promises to bring it about. The situation in which there was no remedy and there was an incurable wound... They do, in fact, have a remedy, and they do, in fact, have a cure. It just takes God himself doing it. That's the reason for the incarnation. When it had been taken captive by a devil, God entered humanity and defeated a devil and took it back. Okay, That's the victorious gospel. Justin, because he loves the LXX, is going to read you the same verse. In Greek. We make our Hebrew scholar read Greek, and we make our Greek scholar at the other end read Hebrew. Don't worry, I'm going to talk to you about literal Hebrew in a second. But just because the LXX decided to actually include this portion of Jeremiah, that's why we're going to read it. So it says, look, I myself am bringing healing and remedy to her. He's put it, they're putting it in the present tense. I myself am bringing healing and remedy to her. You mean God can bring healing and remedy while it's going on, while the curse, while there is uh, all kinds of cannibalism and bad things going on? Of course he can do it. He can do it in a moment. And I will make it evident to them. Man, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? He will make it so abundantly clear to them that they have been healed that they will know that it is God doing it by his ability alone and that they couldn't do it themselves. You ever been to a crazy charismatic meeting where a man prayed for you and, and you were excited because he prayed for you, but then they declared you healed and you knew you weren't healed? Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Your arm's growing, your arm's growing. Friend, my arm is exactly like it was before. You could at least be a man about it. You will know when you're healed. Yes. Israel will know when they are healed. The new covenant promises their healing and that it will be evident to them. That means for sure that we're not talking about a weird spiritual allegory where suddenly the inhabitants of Congo replace Israel. Yeah. Okay. 
Alright, let's pick up in verse 7. And notice that in verse 7, this promise is for both houses. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity. Yeah. And will rebuild them as they were before. As they were before. Hmm. Look, Judah and Israel will not only come back from the captivity, but they will be as they were before. That's a total restoration. Now the Hebrew here, the literal Hebrew says, they will be as they were at the first. At the first. Now this difference may seem subtle to you, but it's an important one. Both houses are coming out of captivity, and they will be as they were at the first. At the first time they came out of captivity. Unified, healed, and restored. One nation came out of Egypt. Not two. One nation came out of Egypt. One nation entered the promised land. Not two. They will be, and this is in the sense of a prophecy. This is like an imperative when God is saying, I will rebuild them as they were before. They will be as they were at the first. Both Houses, one nation coming out of captivity. And if you believe in a second exodus, they're going to hear the Lord's voice from the mountain a second time. Well, come on. That is total restoration. Do you catch why it's so important to not read that as before? Yeah. Hey, after the Babylonian captivity, I'm going to do an amazing thing. You'll be in exactly the same situation as you were before. Oh. Well, that situation really sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Judges. Not full of faith. Divided nation, all kind of problems. That's not really what the Hebrew says. It says like you were at the first, the founding of the nation. Like okay. the first betrothal. Yeah. Yeah, there will be a wedding and it will be like the first moment that she said, I do. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. And let's pick up in verse 8. Yeah. Your marriage is not going well. You go to the marriage counselor and he says, I got great news for you. When we are done with this marriage counseling, your marriage will be like it was the day before you sought marriage counseling. No. No, I'll, I'll pass on that. That's kind of the situation we're in right now. But the counselor looks at you and says, when we're done with marriage counseling, your marriage will be like it was on the first day. Woo, honeymoon again. Yeah. That you'll take. Verses 8 through 9. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will, be, will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for I don't know if you guys caught this yet, but ever since we started in verse 6, the Lord is walking through a series of events that he is prophetically promising for his nation of Israel. It began in 6, and as we read through 8 and 9, this list is continuing. To recap a few, just in case you missed it, in verse 6 we heard about health. We heard about the restoration to the nation. We heard about healing, spiritually and physically, to the nation of Israel. We heard about Judah and Israel being restored as they were from the first. So we've got three things so far. Before we go on to the next ones, I wanted to put the Masoretic text for verses 8 and 9 up on the screen. Thank you. 
And there is a distinction here that we wanted to bring to your attention. It says, And I will purify them of all their iniquity that they sinned against me. And I will forgive all their iniquities that they sinned against me and that they rebelled against me. And, somebody say, and. And. And it shall be to me for a name of joy, for praise, and for glory to all the nations of the earth who will hear all the good that I do for them and fear and tremble because of all the good and because of all the peace that I do for it. So in the NIV, there was a word there and it said, then. Well, that kind of is like a, a little bit of a train wreck in the midst of a beautiful list of seven things that the Lord is going to do for his nation. And it's not just, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. These are seven things that are a package deal. They come together. They can't be separated. And so we have a slide for you. We put these seven together, and we want to show you the package deal that the Lord's going to give his nation Israel. Number one, health, restoration to the nation. Two, healing. It's going to be healing in both spiritual and physical to the nation. Number three, Judah and Israel will be restored as they were from the first. Number four, he is going to purify them. Number five, he is going to forgive them. Number six, he is going to make them a name of joy, praise, and glory. And check out number seven. Every, somebody say every. Every. Every nation on earth will hear. Every nation on earth is going to fear. And every nation on the earth is going to tremble. It's all nations. It's not some nations. It's not a selection of nations on the earth. It says every nation is going to hear, fear, and tremble at the Lord and at his, before his nation because of these things that he accomplishes. Amen. The reason that we're taking the time to point out subtle differences, like then versus and, then draws to mind a sequential order of events. And simply joins ideas. Do you remember when we were talking at the very beginning of Jeremiah that these guys are like spiritual artists and they're painting a picture? They are not doing a math equation. A plus B equals C. When theologians look at this, they tend to want to make these sequential. That is not the point at all. We are describing what consolation for Israel looks like. And God is saying, all of these things I will do. He is not saying, here is the sequential order of the things that I will do. Okay? And that's where we really want you to engage with this is all the ways we keep summing up the new covenant. One of the things that you have to have in mind is this is what Messiah does for the nation. And it's not nearly done yet. Okay, it's initiated, the, the process is in place for this to happen, but it takes two comings for this to happen. Can anybody on earth right now say that every nation on earth has heard about Israel, fears Israel, and is trembling because they are the praise and glory of God? Okay, then we are not done yet. We, we, we still have work to do. Yeah. Something that is not our purview this evening, but we want to give as uh, a rabbit trail that you Bible scholars can hunt down. You've been hearing sermon after sermon about the razor process 
and how a specific group was called out and purified and something was interacting in their life and they were made into something that they were not before. Then they represented God to the larger group. Now we hear a prophecy about what Messiah will do to all Israel, and then they will represent him to all the world. This comes right down to the part where you see number four, purify. That word is present in what you've been studying in Numbers 8, where they're sprinkled with water. Same word. We're not going to stay and rest on that this evening, but it would be worth your time seeing how the priesthood of God carries all the way through, and Israel is the model for the rest of the world. Yeah, you could read purify them as cleanse them, forgive them as shave them, and make them a name of joy, praise, and glory as clothe them. But that's, that's not within our, our context tonight. It's just a special connection for those that attend this church regularly. <laughs> Let's go on to verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without men or animals. Yet. Yes. Yet. Yet. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness. The voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Israel has had bright days like Ezra's reform, or the Hasmonean dynasty, or even 1948. They were encouragements because weddings and joy are occurring in Israel again. But that alone was not a fulfillment of the promises that we just talked about. Yeah. Weddings, just weddings happening again, does not look like health. Can we see the slide again? Or healing spiritually and physically to the nation. Judah and Israel being res restored as if they were new. Being purified and forgiven. Being a name of joy, praise, and glory. And every nation on earth fearing and trembling, not because they are a horror to them, but because Israel is so blessed that it makes the nations tremble. Yeah. Oh, come on. What, this was a special time with Jeremiah. The Lord is speaking to him, and he's not promising him to make it better. He says, I'm promising to make it new, like it was at the beginning. Now, some of this has to do with the way that we as Westerners tend to view the word fulfilled in the way that Hebrews do. Uh, but I'm going to pick on my friends in Israel just a little bit for a moment. Every time there's a wedding in Israel and there's joyful dancing, they say this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 33. Well, yes and no. It is a fulfillment in that a singular aspect is present, but we're missing seven very important aspects that go with it. Now, in a Jew's mind, when a process can be seen as beginning, it is fulfilled, okay? Because God speaks the end from the beginning. And maybe we can see that process beginning in the repatriation of 1948, but you know what I don't see in the repatriation of 1948? The other seven. <laughs> you might see the process beginning in the Hasmonean dynasty, but I, I certainly don't see these seven present right. there. Okay, you, you might see the process beginning 
in Ezra's reforms, but you don't see the other seven. That's because what God is speaking to Jeremiah about goes way beyond a restoration from Babylonian captivity. He's talking about Israel's ultimate destiny. And when eschatology teachers cannot get this right, you end up with overly complicated systems that are forced to allegorize everything to make it fit. This is true on two ends of the spectrum. The preterists are certainly guilty of this, but the rapturists are also guilty of this. And so are some of our favorite Bible teachers that would like 1948 to be the date in history that we mark for everything to have changed. It, it didn't. It hasn't. And there may yet be another captivity coming because we have not seen these seven things happen. Okay? When they happen, then you can say the new covenant is fulfilled in the Western sense of the word. Yeah. Look, the, the easiest way to contextualize the Hebrew idea of fulfilled is an English phrase. It's as good as done. Yeah. They believe that when the Lord has set it into motion, it's a statement of faith that it will be brought to completion. And any charismatics in the room understand that for a moment? Yeah. Yeah. Now, while acknowledging that, it's important that we don't accept the steering wheel as the entirety of the car. Yeah. My two-year-old will play with a steering wheel, but that's not the same thing as him now having a car and his driver's license. That's true. Here are some of the notes of what God is giving his people in the fullness of it, not just a toy steering wheel. Let's get verse 12 and 13. This is going to be good. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without men or animals, in all its towns, there will be again pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass. Pause there for me, brother. Look, as we're getting to this last verse, I just want to point out, when we're describing the Negev, the western foothills, Benjamin, these are not the only areas that are going to be restored. These are the areas that in Jeremiah's day, specifically with the Lord speaking to him, that have just been razed to the ground. There's still burning and smoke going on all around him. He's describing the battle scene around Jerusalem that has not even cooled down yet. It's still yeah. smoking. In fact, this is the route that enemies took all the time to come invade Jerusalem. And God is saying, those places will be restored. If those places are going to be restored, yes, all the rest will be too. Yes. Brother, read the last sentence in full again for me. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. All right, I got any Acts 1 students in the room with me? In the Peshat, somebody say the Peshat. Peshat. In the plain, simple, isolated language, this verse clearly refers to shepherds with flocks under their care. However, both our study team and volumes and volumes of rabbinical literature see Midrash with passages like uh, Ezekiel 34, yeah. Micah 2, or some authors in the New Testament, rabbis, that recounted John 10. We believe that the Spirit of God is hinting at the Lord as the good shepherd that yeah. was spoken of. That is, again, counting and caring for and cultivating his flock as they are passing under his care. Yeah. Now, 
I don't know if time permits, but I'm curious to hear my father's thoughts on it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we have 28 minutes, and there are some amazing things we need to get to. Let's, let's just walk through some Bible basics that are not basics for us, okay? When you take Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you translate them into their actual Hebrew names, we get Bereshit in the beginning, and then Shemot. These are the names. And after that, Leviticus or Veikra. He called Bemidbar, Numbers, in the desert, Devarim. Uh, Deuteronomy and gave his word in the beginning these are the names that he called in the desert and gave his word that's just the first five books first sentences that the names are taken from that's beautiful in and of itself but when you dig down into this it's even more beautiful than that in the beginning these are the names why is God taking down the names Mm. of people that he has forecasted in the beginning in the book of Bereshith or Genesis that are going into captivity in the Exodus book. He's taking down their names because he's going to bring them back out. Okay. The reason the book is called These Are the Names is because every family member that went into Egypt is going to come out of Egypt. God does not abandon his people any more than a shepherd abandons the flock. The flock is being disciplined, but they're still his flock. In this passage where we see a shepherd will again have the animals come under and he'll count them as they come under his hand. I see a midrash for the good shepherd that has never lost sight of his flock, even though the flock feels abandoned. And he knows their names. And he is going to bring them back out. That's probably all we have time for on that. But um, why don't we pick up in verse 14. It'll be our last verse this evening, but we do have 26 minutes worth of discussion about it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of The days are coming. Does that sound like Jeremiah thought he was living in that day, that it it was happening right now? No. No. No, In fact, he later prophesied that it will be 70 years before this process even begins. He encourages them to settle down and build houses. The days are coming. I have to tell you, when you look at that list of seven, could you put that list of seven back on the screen? We haven't seen these days yet. We haven't seen health and restoration to the whole nation, all 12 tribes. But in the book of Revelation, in the 7th chapter, you see all 12 tribes listed. We haven't seen healing spiritually and physically to the entire nation. In fact, during World War II, we saw 6 million of those nations exterminated by a nation that claimed to be Christian. Okay, So we're clearly not there. Judah and Israel will be restored as they were at the first. There's no time in Israel's history from Jeremiah till now that Israel was unified in the way they were when they came out of Egypt, but he's promising it again. There's no time in Israel's history where the nation is purified as a nation, but it will happen. 
where the nation is forgiven as a nation. But it will happen. No time in Israel's history where they are a name of joy, praise, and glory before the throne of God and every nation on earth hears it, fears it, and trembles as it's happening. That has never happened. But it will happen. How do we know it will happen? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Verse 14 is a great summary of the new covenant. It's found in the body and blood of Messiah. And the fact that you were included in that covenant does not change the original covenant. It can't. The fact that you are a co-heir does not change the fact that you can't be a co-heir without the original heir. That wouldn't be co-heir. Friends, the gracious promise in the new covenant, and we have to be honest, it's a long ways from being completed. In our second teaching, which will be on this chapter next Monday, you're going to see even greater promises than those seven. And they're made in these next 12 verses. They are rarely, if ever, considered by the Christian community. Things like perpetual sacrifice. That causes most Christians to just go into convulsions. (laughs) And it's because they have no idea what the book of Hebrews is actually talking about. And they think that the book of Hebrews erases every prophet that came before it rather than stands on top of it. Things like a Levitical priesthood that never ends. Okay? That is coming next Monday. You can see why sketches of the millennial reign might take us a little while. We want to spend our last 22 minutes going through some practical things that we believe this house will benefit from as we prepare to break for the evening. Do you all have 22 minutes left in you? Whether you do or not, it's exactly what we're doing, so you might as well enjoy it. All right, we're going to start in Genesis, and as you can guess, we're going to go throughout the whole holistic of the Bible. So in Genesis 42, verse 24 through 26, this is about Joseph, and it says, he turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. You see, Joseph stands as a shining example, or if you'd like to call it a shadow and a type of the Savior of the world. Come on. He's one of the best examples in the Bible. But you see him in this passage, he is weeping over the current condition of his brother Israelites. They don't recognize him. He's thinking about all the pain in the past that they are being loaded down with. And yet his weeping is not without hope. He is weeping incredibly intensely that he has to hide himself from them. And yet he has a hope inside of him in his weeping. He knows that that through this course correction process, this process that is happening to his brothers, he knows that all 12 tribes 
will be saved. Amen. He was in a prison and he knew that God had done this so that he could be put in a position to save them. He knew that. He had this hope inside of him. Now, us, like Jeremiah. You see, Joseph is a lot like Jeremiah in this regard. He knows what's going to happen. And yet, he is still burdened and brokenhearted. You see, Jeremiah and Joseph and us who aspire to be like those men, we stand as the Lord's ambassadors during painful, difficult, and trying days. We don't back down. We don't quit. We stand in those situations. And yet, we are entrusted with maintaining the hope of the ultimate outcome. That is the definition of not quitting, is going with the revelation that you do have and maintaining that hope by perseverance. Can you hold those two things in your hands? Can you hold the present reality that is grieving and the hope that God says will come about in your hand and engage both? I tell you, every real Christian funeral does this. And you've been to very few real Christian funerals in your life. Usually, it's a series of lies made to make people feel better about the dead guy in the box that will never raise again. But when you are standing and you are grieving for a real Christian, you're grieving because your present circumstance hurts. But you are not grieving as a man with no hope because you know it is only temporary and that brother will return with Christ and you will be glorified with him. That is the attitude that we have towards the nation of Israel. You can grieve over a present stumbling, but you always have to hold hope in your hand because God said what will happen. So this is why we love these men of the Bible because they had both. And it allows us to see that they were human like us. They went through the same situations. They didn't hide their grieving, but they also didn't back away even though they were grieving. Come on. Now, Jeremiah spoke some pretty tough words, and they did come to pass. But he's not the only prophet in the Older Testament that spoke some pretty tough words. No. You know, Jeremiah, he has a nickname. It's called the Weeping Prophet. Let me tell you a secret tonight. He's not the only prophet of Israel that wept. Listen to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 4. Therefore I said, turn away from me. This is Isaiah speaking. Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. It was Isaiah in this passage. Isaiah the prophet who was weeping over a portion of a generation of Israel that refused to be refined. I mean, the prophecy, some of the prophecies that he was stating were coming to pass before his very eyes, and yet, just like the prophet Jeremiah, he was weeping because he was watching them with his own eyes. He's the one that first saw the millennial kingdom in Israel and wrote about it and prophesied about it. Think about you. Think about me. It's appropriate that we hold both of these things in our hands, that we weep at the destruction that is around us, but that we also are able to hold out hope through our present circumstances and situations. We need our maturity in these two areas to rise because we're called to be witnesses and testimonies 
through some of the darkest times yes. that we will ever see. Yes. Were any of y'all here on Sunday? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like a two-bull process. You have to be willing and voluntary to feel what God feels about a situation. But the second bull <laughs> is that God will make atonement. Yeah. You hold both of those things <laughs> like silver in Joseph's sack. <laughs> <laughs> or brass. Are you guys ready for a song? Yeah. 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 All right, this is Psalm 34, verses 18 through 20. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles. Yes, Lord. Necessary. Yes. But the Lord delivers him from all of them. Come on. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Listen, Israelites and Gentile believers will go through many tribulations for refinement. Say refinement. Refinement! That's why we go through hardships. Therefore, our refinement. The process of going through that refinement, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because of what it produces. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 4.20? God took his people... His bride through an iron smelting furnace. That's usually not what people think about where they want to take their bride for dinner. We're going through the iron smelting furnace. But why does he do it? Because he's trying to make something. We are learning from the older brother Israel how God makes something. And we should hold out hope when we're going through that refinement. Because when we are penitent and brokenhearted... God has not done away with us. He's refining us to make something beautiful. Amen. What Peyton just shared is beautiful on a level that is difficult to grasp until you experience it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I simply want to make some practical application from verse 20 and not discuss the fact that there are allusions to a Passover lamb that has no bone broken or a singular Passover lamb that was bruised and scourged but had no bone broken. And just suffice to say, you will absolutely be bruised, but your spirit will not be broken when you stand in the Lord. Amen. 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 I think Amen. you can hear Paul alluding to this over and over again in his writings, particularly in Corinthians. Psalm 51 says this, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We're going to get to verse 18, but I want to start out by saying that our brokenness over the sinful condition of the children of God is something that the Spirit of God is close to and will not despise. And if you want to know what it's like to grieve over the condition of his people, it takes a broken and contrite spirit before him in your own life. You begin to recognize what it is to cry out for your brothers that were destined to find salvation when you desperately need it, you grow more intimate with the king who is able to save you. Verse 18, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Amen. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. No matter how dark the situation is or what the grieving we are currently experiencing is, our hope must always be mixed with the kind of faith-filled outcome that is to come. Our grieving must always be mixed with the faith-filled proclamation of the ultimate outcome that God has determined. Yeah. 
Jerusalem will be established as the city of God. Amen. If you hold and keep to the faith as the co-heir that he allowed you to be, you will be established and built up no matter how much tearing down you're currently experiencing. Amen. But we must stand and proclaim the ultimate truth for them, and it will come about for us. There are many passages in the Bible that talk about a broken and contrite heart. And rightly, when you read them, you think about your broken and contrite heart over your condition. Psalm 51 may be alluding to something else. It may be having a broken and contrite heart over someone you love's condition. To best understand that, if you're a parent of a child that has reached the age of accountability. Oh, come on. And they're not doing well. I got to tell you that hurts in a very special way. Yeah. It's not that you don't agree with God. It's not that you don't stand with God. It's that you share his emotion that their sin is breaking you to pieces. Right? That's the sense in which the prophets speak about Jerusalem. But Psalm 51 ends with, you will make Zion prosper. You will build up the walls of Jerusalem. Amen. As a parent, when your children aren't doing well and God speaks to you and says, yeah, well, the word will not depart from your family line. What does that do for you? We're bouncing back and forth between personal application and national application, but I want you to understand God calls Israel his son. You want to get close to his heart, you need to care about the things that he cares about. Yeah. The same way you care about your own children. Uh, um, after all, this is their plan. This is, this is their promise. Their place that it happens in, and it's always there. I, I've noticed that there are no black Hebrew Israelites during the Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they tend to only hang out at one Whataburger and assault our church members. Um, we cannot be with Israel only for promises. You want to provoke Israel to jealousy because you love the writings of the Apostle Paul? You must learn to stand in tribulation. Of course, you'll never do that if you don't stand in your own tribulation. So there's a relationship between these things. I want to show you another prophet, more than a prophet. It comes from Luke 19. It's verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. I can only think of a couple times that Jesus wept in the scripture. Yeah. Friend Lazarus died and he wept. It's Luke's shortest verse. And here in Luke 19, he describes the Jewish Messiah that came. Would you put those seven things back on the screen? He came. To do this, weeping, because he knew not receiving this meant that there was more razor-like refining coming. And he, he, it caused him to weep, not because it's not just, not because it's not right, but because he knew what it meant for people. And he loved them. You know, he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus, but he wept over him. He knows that he's going to save all of Israel, but he wept over the city. Do you see how he holds both things in his hand? Yeah. It's not one or the other. It's a little bit like going to somebody at a funeral and saying, oh, it's okay, you'll get married again. Even if it's true, somehow or another, that is 
grossly inappropriate for that moment. We need to be able to grasp both, both of these things. Yes, God is ultimately going to fix every one of these problems. Amen. And it should break our heart for the condition of the nation. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it and said, even if, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is, hear this word, Hidden from your eyes. You catch the connection to Jeremiah 33? If their condition had caused them to call out to the Lord, it wouldn't be hidden from their eyes. But it didn't, so the prescription is more of that condition. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Josephus re recorded in this prophecy as it was being fulfilled in 70 AD. Josephus recorded infant cannibalism again. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. The same children whose angels are always before the face of the Father. Reporting on the condition of the people. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So he's done with Israel, right? No. no. What's he do next? Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. It's not about the rejection of Israel. It's about the rejection of the Judean leaders of Israel. It's still his house. It's still his nation. It's still his son. And he is going to save them. The scripture unequivocally declares this in the Peshat. It's just faithless theologians that want to reinterpret it. And I'm really sorry that some of you have gotten caught up in that. We're doing everything we can to wrench you free from it. He didn't say you didn't recognize the time of coming, so by the way, I'm going to return in 70 AD and you'll just get screwed. He immediately went to purify the temple. And the tearing down of the temple was just because this was a temporary purifier. It will be built again. Yeah. Ezekiel said it'd be built again. Paul said it'd be built again. And John measured it physically. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem, as did King Jesus. This is because those who would not be refined caused them to weep. However, in each case, they also joyfully expressed the ultimate outcome of the promise. Namely, that the Father would in fact save the nation. It's like grieving over the fact that you have to spank your kid again. Moms, you, you're not with me on this? <laughs> but you're not done with the child. In fact, the spanking is proof that you're not done with the child. Right. Look at how Paul addresses this in Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 1 through 5. Y'all with us? Yes. 
We got two more verses and then we have some beautiful things. But listen to Paul's own words here. I speak the truth in Christ. You ought to listen up when the Apostle Paul says that. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it with the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you see the grieving and mourning there? Now listen to what he says next. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Amen. Do you see that Paul has unceasing anguish and that he's also referencing a promise? He's holding both in his hand. Paul is weeping over a generation that was being dashed to pieces like pottery because of unbelief. And yet, two chapters later, in Romans 11, he confidently affirms that all Israel will be saved. He's holding both in his hands. And you know what that means? It means that he is mourning, but not just for no reason. He's mourning because there is hope. You see, mourning when it is mourning for the right things, it is always because there is hope. A hope there, and they're missing it. You see, I probably wept more than most for Israel. I say most because I know that there are men sitting there, right there in these chairs. I know there are men on this stage who have joined in that. But you want to know the reason why I mourn the most for Israel? Because I know that there is a hope. It's so easy. It's available right there. God, make it happen, please, now. See, those things are always connected, hope and proper mourning. They are held both together in in the man of God. Grieving and having a hope, knowing that God will do it, but grieving over the current circumstances now. I have to believe that God put Paul in this situation so that he would call out to him, just like Jeremiah. He's grieving, but he wants him to call out so he can share the hope with him. And Paul gets it in Romans 11. Look at a man in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Look at a man who is put in the exact same situation as Paul, as Jeremiah, as Jesus. Revelation 5, 1 through 5 will be our last passage of the night. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. John has called out to the Lord. And he's getting a download, a revelation, a mystery, an unveiling of what will soon take place. And he's watching it happen. And he comes to a point in the revelation where he doesn't know if this is going to happen or not. Where is the man? 
Where is? He's at the point in the Revelation where everything, all of history, is literally pointed to this exact point. And yet, they're looking. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to break those seals? Who's worthy to open the scroll? But no one, not in the heavens, not in the earth, not under the earth, no one could be found who was worthy to break the seal. No one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll. And so verse 4 says, I wept. Not just I wept, I wept and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Praise God for verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. You see, there's a time when you are weeping over a situation when you can see you're in anguish over it. But there's also a time where those tears are wiped away when you realize the hope that is present for the nation of Israel. When you realize the hope that there is hope for them, that the things that the Lord has spoken about Israel to an extent have come to pass, and they are evidence that everything else that he has spoken about in the future will absolutely come to pass as well. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. We, we as Christians, we as those who love Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, we may weep for the people of God in a moment when it looks like the situation might even have no remedy, might even have no hope. But when the Lion of the tribe of Judah appears, and when he says, I am that remedy of the people, it's time to wipe those tears away from your eyes Amen. and stand Amen. with God's promises and stand with God's people and extend the same hope that he's giving to you to his people so that they can see it. Amen. As stand. Pastor Wade makes his uh, way up here, there's a refrain in the book of Jeremiah constantly. I will be their God and they will be my people. It would not be possible in Jeremiah's day to even consider that we were talking about anybody other than the physical nation of Israel. That same refrain is in Revelation 21. I will be their God and they will be my people. The fact that something has been unveiled to you and you realize that you can stand there with them certainly does not mean that you can stand there without them. Our God has one plan. He has one people, and he will perform it in one place, which is why the city coming down is called the New Jerusalem. Yeah. The tension between needing to weep over the condition of God's people and holding on to the hope that is prescribed is what these men's, men have laid out before you tonight. 
They walk through an entire scripture string talking about the contriteness that's required, the broken heart that's required. And if you're not careful, you might be like me and at first we're thinking only of the personal application. What you are learning to do, what these men are so eloquently presenting to you, is that your first thought should be of God and His people. That this story is not just Israel-centric, it is Israel-dependent. When you realize God's faithfulness there, it should move your heart when you realize the condition of what's going on. Going on there with the Israelites, going on with God's people, and then the application to us. Beth, put up uh, Jeremiah 33, and let's just do verses 2 and 3 as a closing thought. This is what Yahweh says. He who made the earth, the Creator, He who formed it, He who established it, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh is His name. Those are not English terms, those are Hebrew terms defining the God of the Hebrews that we have been included in. He's the one that creates. He's the one that forms and reforms and He establishes as in He established it from before time began. Of course there are direct personal applications that we must make. But as a church, let's get very, very good at placing Israel at the center of everything because it's at the center of God's heart. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the one who formed it and established it, Yahweh is His name. Next verse. Call to me, Israel. Specifically an Israeli man. Call to me, Jeremiah, and I will answer you. I'll reveal things that you can't even imagine that are unsearchable, that you could never find on your own. The only way to find it is for you to call on Him is what's happening with Jeremiah. Man, I just have a deep desire tonight to call to Him. That we can both hold on to the reality of what we see in the nation of Israel and maybe even in your own heart tonight? What are the things inside of you that should be wept over? And, somebody say and. And. As you call to Him, when you understand and you really weep, it makes you want to call to Him so that He can reveal, He can unveil, He can bring revelation to you because He's going to do it for His people first stand to your feet tonight with me and as we begin to pray i want you to call to him raise your hands and begin to call to him now father we cry out right now tonight father we cry out for your nation Lord, we want your heart for your nation, Lord God. Father, we want your heart tonight, Lord, as you see them. Lord, they're describing your word as the apple of your eye. And Father, you see their condition. Lord, help us to have your heart for your nation, mighty God. To see the present reality, but to know that you are yet.
Mighty God, even this evening, that our hearts might be rightly aligned with your word. Lord, right now we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, even as a group. Lord, we know that this is your heart. Psalm 122 in verse 6 says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God, we pray for your people first. We pray for your people most, Lord. Lord, would you realign our hearts to both be able to weep and mourn with the brokenness and to hold on to the hope of what you have said. God, we call to you that you might reveal to us the centrality and the dependence upon your people and upon your plan. Lord, that you would move upon your people here in this room that you have so graciously included us into your plan. But first, it's for your people. Lord, that we might be able to partake with them, but never without them. Lord, we honor you and we call upon you as the great God and King of Israel, King of your people. Lord, we honor you as Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.